0: Well, uh, this morning brings us to our last uh, message in the Bible reading program for the whole year. Some of you just have a couple more days and then you'll be done. Others will continue on uh, for a little bit longer and finish up that way, and that's entirely okay. Uh, But we're just finishing up the book of Revelation, and so that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. So Revelation chapter 21, look at verses... Uh, We're going to read the entire chapter, and then also the first seven verses of chapter 22. Revelation chapter 21 through 22.7. Ideally, what you'd want, of course, is to actually work through the book uh, before getting to the end of it. Uh, There's a lot of symbolism. There's patterns of interpretation in Revelation, which actually makes the book very coherent. uh, If you just take the time to, to work through it. And so by the time you get to Revelation 21, you're supposed to sort of at least done your best to understand the main drift of the book's message before. And if you do, you get into patterns of what symbols mean and all the rest. It becomes very, actually, quite explicable. Uh, We're not going to be able to say everything there is to say about uh, this text, so I'm going to read it. Pay very careful attention to it. It basically explains itself in some ways. And then I'll go back and just hit some highlights. It's Revelation 21, uh, this is the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth pearl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a Lamb for the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent His angel to show His servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Well, I don't, um, I don't know precisely uh, what your year has been like. Uh, lots of events, doubtless, uh, lots of things expected, lots of things unanticipated, Uh, but we're coming to the end of our Bible reading program, and so before we look at this text uh, together this morning, I just ask you to take a moment uh, just to bring your heart before the Lord, Uh, He knows uh, everything about you, He knows your disposition, uh, the state of your last week, the state of your last year, Uh, He knows where your heart is this morning, and so just take a moment individually to bow before Him in prayer, and then after a few moments I'll lead us together. So, Father, we would ask that uh, this morning, by your Spirit, uh, you would guide us by your Word. Pray that you will open our hearts, give us uh, attentive minds that have supernatural attention, uh, given by you. Pray that you will give us open, soft hearts uh, to receive your Word. That if there are things that we uh, need to repent of, that we will be enabled to do that. I pray that for those of us, Lord, who are saved by Christ, I pray that you'll help us to appreciate him more, to love him more thoroughly, to see him more clearly. And also, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to live in eager expectation of the future that will be ours at the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we, we don't know what uh, this year will bring. it's it, It is, at least to us, uh, not according to your knowledge, of course, but according to what we know, it is possible that Christ could return this next year. I pray that you'll help us to, to live in that reality. Help us to find the purpose and meaning and priorities of our life, not on the basis of the temporal things this world provides but on the basis of the eternal state. Lift our eyes to Jesus. John was carried by the Spirit to see these things. We require being carried by the Spirit to see them as well. So fill us with your Spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this text does, of course, talk about uh, the fact that Christ is returning, and it does hold out sort of this expectation of the imminence of it. It ends with Jesus saying, you know, Behold, I am coming soon. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, of course. But the idea is that the, the next great big moment in redemptive history is the second advent of the Lord. He, he actually is coming back. Uh, he came uh, the first time, which we've been just reminding ourselves of, hopefully, uh, at Christmas. Uh, The first advent of the Lord, and that was in fulfillment of a lot of prophecy, but there is more prophecy about the second coming of Christ. He is going to return. And this text gives us that promise. It anchors it in the fact that it's trustworthy. It reminds us we don't know when it's going to be. But it also, in a very highly charged, symbolic way, gives us a picture of what some of it's going to look like. I think it's actually really important to recognize, too. One of the things that, if we went through Revelation at at length, one of the things I'd say again and again and again is that the book isn't to be literalized. Uh, The book is giving us pictures for realities that transcend our experience and categories to the point where there are certain texts where it's just really obvious that God is describing things we can't possibly imagine. Well, how do you describe things you can't possibly imagine? Well, all you can do is use rough analogs. All you can do is use rough analogies. Like, if you're trying to explain to to little children complex realities, you you can't just tell them, well, this is what it's like. Uh, You have to sort of work at the level that they're at to help them get a little bit of a picture of what the complex reality is. That's what God's doing for us. Uh, In Revelation, he's revealing to us things that simply transcend our experience and categorization. We're not able to fully grasp everything that there is in this book, so God gives us pictures. In some ways, it's like baby talk. He's just helping us as toddlers understand a little bit about what the heavenly reality is going to be like. So when we come to this text, the one thing you have to remember, as much as there are some elements in here which sound really great, this is just the, the faintest whisper of the reality. Uh, this is just a shadow of it. This is not as good as it gets. Uh, this is sort of a, a poor man's version of a picture of glory, and even there it's enough for us uh, to worship God. I'm just going to pick a few highlights as we go. Uh, as, as, as I said, uh, I'm not going to be able to sort of work through this text at any length. First. The passage begins right after the judgment that divides people on the basis of whether or not their name is written in the Book of Life. So chapter 20 ends with this picture of judgment. So the assumption now moving forward is, let's look at, there will be a brief digression, but let's look at the fate of those whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There's the judgment, and now what happens after that? What happens to those who actually know and love the Lord? Well, the cast is immediately back to Isaiah. Isaiah 65 and 66 is the first place in the Bible where we get the language of the new heaven and new earth. So this isn't something which is a New Testament concept. It's it's in Isaiah, and it's picked up again and again in the New Testament. Uh, In fact, if you really want to understand the Gospels, Isaiah is a fantastic book to study because the Gospels are drawing on Isaiah and Isaiahic imagery all of the time. Uh, in fact, this is exciting, you'll, you'll like to know this, uh, some of you noted that when we went through this one year Bible, uh, I didn't preach once out of the book of Isaiah. Uh, as rich as Isaiah is, I, I just bypassed it, as if it didn't exist, I never mentioned it. Because I plan on preaching through it starting next week, like not the whole book next week, but just working through it. So, twenty nineteen. Where? What year are we in now? Twenty eighteen. So, twenty nineteen is going to be the year of Isaiah. You know, this was the year of the one year Bible. Twenty nineteen will be uh, the year of Isaiah. It's amazing how you characterize years. Probably for Israel in the Exodus, you know, it was the year of the Exodus. You know, for Noah it would have been the year of the flood. You know, this is for us. It's going to be the year of Isaiah. That's what we're going to do, uh, Lord willing, starting next week. But this language, a new heaven and new earth, is drawn from Isaiah. What you're supposed to do, actually, when you read this phrase, is you're supposed to either go back and read Isaiah, or you're supposed to be so familiar with Isaiah, you bring all the imagery forward. So if you're not familiar automatically or immediately with Isaiah 65 and 66, what you should do this afternoon is read that section. Because what John is saying here is, look, the climax of Isaiah is now. Now. That's fulfilled with the return of Jesus Christ. All of that imagery, you want to understand, it's being applied in shorthand here. I saw the consummation, the new heaven and new earth. Why? Because the old order of things had passed away, and there's no longer any sea. Now this is a reminder, pretty obviously and transparently, that some of this is working on highly symbolic, uh, charged language. For the Hebrews, uh, culturally, the sea was not something which we think of in terms of, you know, lakes and, and the ocean, those sorts of things. The sea was a symbol for the, for the realm of chaos. Uh, demons lived in the sea. Uh, so it's not surprising in Revelation, when the beast emerges, where does the beast come out of? The beast comes out of the sea. Okay, so this is sort of a, de- a demonic abode. Everything's chaos. All of the, wa- the waves and the sh- uh, stirring up of the muck and foam... In Isaiah, interestingly, it becomes a picture of the wicked. The sea is a place of instability, chaos, and evil. So you're not being told, in the new heavens and new earth there are no lakes. You're being told, in the new heavens and new earth there is no abode of evil. Uh, There's no home of chaos. All of that, that, that enemy has been put away forever. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed, for her husband. Now it's interesting here that this is drawing on Isaiah and Zephaniah. Uh, in Isaiah and Zephaniah both. You get pictures of God rejoicing in his bride, which is his people. Now we often, when we worship, we tend to think of you know, worship as us rejoicing in God. And, and that's right and proper. I mean you you read uh, the epistles. You read Psalms, we are to rejoice in God our Savior. But one of the staggering things is that in Isaiah and in Zephaniah, God is explicitly said to rejoice over his people. In Zephaniah, in fact, uh, we're told that God sings over his people. He he croons over his people. He woos his people with song. He delights in them. And, And so we sing to God... But God also sings to us. That is the sort of love that he has for us. He delights in us. And he's not worshipping us the way that we worship him. But he's expressing to us in song, in lyric, in, in poetry, how valuable we are to him. And so this day of consummation, as much as it is a beautiful and glorious day for us, It is also the consummation of the desires of the triune God. He wants us to be his people. The the Lamb wants to have an intimate relationship with his redeemed church. God rejoices in us. We are depicted as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This This is the summary covenant blessing. God is going to identify himself with you. You will be my people. I will be proud to associate myself with you. You will finally, thoroughly be proud to associate yourself with me. Because the reality is, we know that even today, in a lot of contexts, a lot of us are a little bit leery, almost embarrassed sometimes, to identify ourselves as belonging to Jesus Christ. And if you think that's overly harsh, uh, I, 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 I just wonder um, in this in, in our church, in our church body, how much how much actual evangelism has been done this last year, where people who know Jesus have told people who don't know Jesus about how to be saved through Christ. I just, I just wonder, and I don't know, maybe, maybe there's been lots, uh, hopefully so. But, but isn't it true that in our Western church culture it seems that there's a reticence or a fear of identifying with Jesus? It seems like there, there, there's something which, which holds back a little bit from being proud to identify with Christ. Uh, on this day, when sin is finally removed, Uh, We will, for the first time, really know what it is like to delight, to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. That's my God. And God will look at us. Us! And say, that's, those are my people. That's my bride. Those are the ones that I love. He will wipe every tear from their eye. The picture here is, is, almost frankly maternal, where, like, the little child comes up crying and the mother gets down on one knee and just just takes her thumb and wipes that tear, wipes away the other tear. All crying is done for good. And it's God himself. Now, look, a lot of you, a lot of us, have shed a lot of tears for a lot of reasons over the years. In fact, uh, many in this room have shed a lot of tears this year for a lot of reasons. There's going to come a day when God himself is going to kneel down and adopt the posture of the caring, loving mother Look right into your eyes, face to face, and comfort you, and not just comfort you. He will heal all the brokenness of your heart for all of the ways and all of the reasons that it was broken and hurt throughout all of your years here. He'll heal it. He'll fuse it together. It will be healthy and whole. In a way that even now you can't imagine. And it will never be hurt again. Not once. Not merely, it will never be hurt again deeply. It will be never hurt at all. Because all the things that bring pain are gone. There will be no more mourning, there will be no more crying. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more death. It's all gone. Why? Because the old order of things has passed away. The reason that we have all of this heartache is because of sin. The sins that other people commit against us but also, I mean, it's, it's nice to blame everyone else. But we create a lot of sorrow ourselves with our responses to people, but also because of the nature that we have. We, we are alienated from God. We are alienated from each other. We are even internally self-alienated. We, we are fractured, sort of psychologically and emotionally, internally. But all that's going to be put away. Sin is going to be gone for good. See, see, all of these things, the the heartache, uh, the the animosity, the pain, the sorrow, the mourning, the death, all of those things, the problem is we we focus on those things as if that's the problem, as if that's the disease. But that's not the problem. Those are symptoms of the disease. The problem is sin. The disease is sin. You, You get rid of sin and the symptoms go away. And so we, we work to, to heal. We work to do all these things, but that's not the solution. The solution, finally and ultimately, is, is internal. And there needs to be a, a spiritual heart transplant. There needs to be a new character put inside of us. There needs to be the eradication of sin inside of us. That's what will take care of all of these other things. And on this day, that's what happens. God consummates the work of redemption. Yes, in Ezekiel, yes, the new covenant promises I'll put my spirit in you. I'll take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. But but we still labor with the effects of sin in our lives. We're we're still torn in in, in multiple directions. Wanting to honor God with a new heart. Still feeling the pull and allure of sin. Wanting to cultivate godly habits and walking with the Lord. Still feeling the pull of, of all of those habits we've laid in our lives. And trying to live our own way. But on this day, you know that you'll never have to worry about any of those things again because sin is gone forever. The surgeon finally takes care of the disease forever. See, right now, we're basically still in treatment. right? We're not, we're not out of the hospital just yet. But on this day, you get your release papers. You know, and a clean bill of health. And, and what would it be like you know, to, live, to have a health care system where not only were you healed, but when you walked out, you, you were healed and you also promised. Now guess what? You're never going to be sick again. That's what God does here. You are never going to be sick again. No more death. That's gone. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain that's this world. Older theologians used to call this the veil of tears. The the valley of tears. Do you realize that, that if you know the Lord that this is this world is the closest experience to hell that you will ever have? if you don't know the Lord, this this, this world is the closest experience to heaven that you will ever have. But for believers, this is as bad as it gets. In an entire eternity, this is the worst moments of your existence. This is the only time you'll ever feel pain. Sometimes the night can seem long. And the experience can seem dreadful. But whatever your lifespan is in this world, this is, this is the, that's the only span of time you'll ever mourn. It's the only span of time you'll ever shed a tear. Because in the new heavens and new earth, it's all gone. It's all done. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, I am making everything new. The word new is actually a, a special word, which means not just another or a second, but something which is qualitatively better, qualitatively different. So it's not just like you, you, know, you, you make a model airplane, then you make a new model airplane, This is basically just the same, just another one. It's not just another one. It's a better one. It's, quali- it's a qualitative work. It's a new order, a, a new world order that you can't possibly imagine. But better in every way. And then he says, write this down, I, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. That echoes, of course. It is, mm-hmm. it is finished. I'm done. Yeah, it's consummated. Why? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And another uh, allusion to Isaiah. Uh, in, in Isaiah, you actually have a picture of God, almost like, almost as if He's reducing Himself to uh, to that, that, that very low level of of life. You know, the 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 carny. Yeah. Uh, how many of you have been to the fair recently? Recently, I we go to a fair in December. Uh, how many of you have been to, a, been to a fair in the last year or so? Just one? Just a couple of you. How many of you ever been to a fair ever in your life? Okay, that's a little better. Uh, so you, know, you go to the fair, and you get all these people. Step right up. You know, come and see the... <laughs> I haven't been to a fair ever. I don't know what people do at fairs. Uh, you know, see the ugliest man who ever lived. Is that a joke? You know, you, anyway, it's, it's a joke there. Um, and, or you know, come right up and see, the, see this, or, or play this game, or, or whatever it is, right? You have God in Isaiah basically adopting that kind of persona. Step right, come over here. There's a whole crowd walking by and Yahweh himself is saying, look, you're thirsty and you're dying. I have water, it's free. Come on over, come have my water. Come drink, come find life. Come have milk and bread, wine without cost. It's here, come over. It's too good to be true, but it's true. Come here, come here. And no one goes. No one, no one takes the water of life freely offered. But here, the offer is given again. Are you thirsty? I will give you water without cost from the spring of the water of life. If there's any spiritual thirst or desire at all, it's all there for free. It's a gift. It's given to you. I will be their God, they will be my children. this, this adoptive relationship. Which is where You're obviously getting m- lots of mixed metaphor symbolism, right? So at one level, it's the bride. At the other level, at another level, it's, it's the adopted child. Okay. So, so you're getting this whole sort of panoply. You're getting this whole uh, multifaceted relationship that, that's so beautiful precisely because it's multifaceted. So in one way it's father-child, and in another way it's husband-bride. It's God and community. It's all kinds of things. One metaphor isn't enough just to to capture what the relationship is, and it's relationship at its best. Now, verse eight reminds us there is a future for those who don't know the Lord as well. And, and, and so just, just in case this has been forgotten, there's this, there's this interjection here. Now, now, don't forget. Don't forget. This is the future for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But for those who are characterized by these things, that is, this is not saying if you have ever Lacked faith, you can't be a, you can't be saved. It's not saying if you've ever told a lie, you can't be saved. What it is saying is that if these sorts of if you are characterized by evil, then that itself is evidence that you don't know the Lord in a saving way. And, and so, if your life is characterized by wickedness in an unrepentant form, if there's no spiritual battle, if there's if we all sin. It's not talking about perfection. But is is there repentance? Is there grief? Is there a desire for holiness? Is there there a desire to drink from the water of life and to be like Christ? Is there a struggle? Or is it just that this characterizes you and you're you're fine with that? Well, well, if if, if being characterized by sin doesn't move you, if you're fine with that, then it's evidence that you don't know the Lord. There is an eternal state for those two characterized as the second death. Now, one of the seven angels or the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came as said, "Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, this is where the mixed metaphors become very obvious. So, you're told, come, I am going to show you the wife, the bride of the Lamb. And you're carried away in the spirit, and what do you see? What you're expecting to see a bride, the wife of the Lamb. But what you see is a city. Now, obviously, Christ is not literally marrying a city. So you're supposed to think about this. Now, mixed metaphors happen all the time in Revelation. You're told to see something, and you see something totally different. So that in uh, Revelation 5, do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Then I looked, and I saw a... Lamb, I thought I was supposed to see a lion. It's showing you different facets. So I look to see the bride, and what I see is a city. Now the city is clearly a metaphor. Uh, It's obviously not about uh, the architecture exactly. It's about the people who live there. So the city functions as a symbol of people anyway. Now, it shines with the glory of God, it's characterized by all of these precious gems and all the rest. It's the holy city, the heavenly fulfillment. It's what people ought to be. It's charged, the summary statement of it is, if you want to know what it's like to be the bride of the Lamb, it's this, you shine with the glory of God. And that's a picture of, of, of such intimacy that who Jesus is infuses who you are. Uh, So that the bride doesn't have her own characteristics in some ways. The bride is an individual, but uh, is sort of a composite corporate individual. Yet, if you look at her, what you see is God's glory. Because she's been transformed. Her beauty is derivative from her her bridegroom. Uh, The wife of the lamb is beautiful because the lamb is so transcendently beautiful that when he touches her, she shines with his own glory. So it's not our glory. It's the glory of God that shines through us because we see His face. And the glory from His face surrounds us and fills us and permeates us so that although it's always His It's it's always his and yet it characterizes us because it's shared as a gift. God gratuitously gives us his glory to bask in. So when people see us, and in, in the new heavens and new earth, when people when, when we see each other, what we what we will see is we'll see we will see each other, but we'll see that person Radiating the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. Like, like a jasper clear as crystal. Symmetrical twelve gates, uh, twelve foundations. It's you know, the tribes of Israel and the apostles of the Lamb. In other words, it's the old covenant and new covenant community together. This is the totality of all of the people of God through all of the ages. The angel measures the city. It's a perfect cube, twelve thousand stadia wide, long, and high. Now you know this—that uh, there's only one cube in the Bible, and that's the Holy of Holies. Okay? Now this is where, if we had—if we had a couple hours, then, then you know, it'd be, it'd be, a couple hours would be better for pacing through the text. Actually, um, but if you had a, if I had a little bit more time, I kind of want to unfold all of the Holy of holy and temple tabernacle imagery that is being picked up here in very short compass. The one thing to remember is this. You have one cube, one Holy of Holies. It's a really small little little place. The Holy of Holies was quite small. But it didn't matter. The size didn't matter. It's where God was. And, and you couldn't go into it. That was the point. If anyone went into it, they died. You are not allowed in the presence of God. Only the high priest, once a year, with very controlled circumstances and substitutionary blood, could go into the Holy of Holies. It's probably the most terrifying experience of anyone's life. You would go in, you would do your job, and you would get out as soon as you possibly could. In fact, in later tradition, they had bells on the hem of the robe of the high priest, and a rope tied to his ankle, in case when he went in, he offended God and God struck him dead. There'd be people on the outside holding the rope, and if the bell stopped ringing for a certain period of time, so the guy wasn't moving, they'd drag him out. That, that was so, so you're going in with a rope tied around your ankle, just in case you die. I don't know what your working conditions are like. You know, that's that, that's a tough day. You know, that's that's almost as I won't say it's like okay. It's almost as bad as what Samus had put up with Jake. That's what I should have said. So so, there you go. (laughs) No, you can't go in, you can't go in. Don't go in, you'll die, you'll die, you'll die. But here, the people of God don't go in to the Holy of Holies. They are the Holy of Holies. They're the city. You are the Holy of Holies. The bride is the Holy of Holies. And this measurement, 12,000 stadia, is, is about the length of the distance from New York to Houston. Now, I'm not sure how many of you have ever walked it. It's a really long walk. You know, one of the things that we think of today is, you know, we know, we have airplanes and cars. We have totally, totally transformed how we view spatial relationships with our mobility and technology. But in the ancient world, most people were born, lived, and died and never went more than 10 miles from the place of their birth. So anything, you're going a couple miles. This is an enormous trip. Israel is a little tiny sliver of geography. The, the distance from New York to Houston, they're not supposed to measure this. They're supposed to go, that's impossibly huge. It's like today if we were told, oh, you know, it's it, the, 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 it was it was six. It was 12,000 Trillion miles, right? That's sort of the idea to the Israelites. You can't imagine this distance; it's enormous. It's the whole universe from where you're concerned. It's the whole known world, and it's as high. I'm talking about a high-rise building. You know, it's as high as it is long. And, and so, the point: if you're a Hebrew, you're thinking, of this, "You're going—that's that, that's, that's the whole world. You could never, ever, ever, ever get out of it." Exactly. In the old covenant, you couldn't get into it, or you would die. In the consummation, you can't get out of it. Because that's where life is. Because somehow, when you are in the presence of God, you belong. He's made you holy. The reason you couldn't get into the Holy of Holies, wasn't because God was was mean, it's because you weren't holy enough. But now you are. Why? Because sin is removed and you are filled with the glory of God. Now you belong in His very presence. You don't want to get out. The, street was, the great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. We talk about this all the time was, you know, in our popular evangelical uh, you know, cliches about you know, walking the streets of gold and all the rest. It's partly a symbol, yes, of, of the value and riches of the city. Fine, But more than that, in, in yeah. Solomon's temple there was a thin layer of gold hammered down that the priests walked on. Only priests walked on gold. This isn't a sign so much about the, the value of the city's cement. This is a sign that everyone in there is a priest. Only the priests who go into the Holy of Holies. We are priest of all, priesthood of all the uh, believers. And, and so we are a nation of royal priests serving the king, walking on gold. But you'll notice, it's not just the street, though. Verse 18 says, The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold. Now that's a detail of some we've missed, but it's way more important than the streets of gold. Way more important. The whole city is pure gold. But what's the city? Us. The city is an extended metaphor for people. It's the bride of the Lamb. And so the church is characterized not by walking on streets of gold. The church is characterized as pure gold. Nothing more valuable. Nothing more beautiful. Nothing more regal and royal. The, the, all cultures have seen as that most special of metals, this most rare and valuable and beautiful, kingly element. God says, oh, no, no, you no, don't, you don't walk on gold, you are gold. I look at you and I say, you are pure gold. And that's God's evaluation. That's what God says of his people. You don't just win a gold medal. You yourself are pure gold. This Holy of Holies interpretation is probably backed up immediately in verse 22, which is I did not see a temple in the city. Well, you don't need a temple in the city because the, whole, the, the, the most holy place in the temple was the Holy of Holies. You don't need a temple if the whole thing is the Holy of Holies. But even more, it's because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The whole point of the temple was a holy priest would meet with God on behalf of the people. But if every person is a holy priest, and God's glory fills them, then the point of the temple has been transcended. A physical temple is an utter anachronism and redundancy. Almost to the point, point. I want to be extraordinarily careful with what I say, because I know how some people... Yeah, don't, don't take this as some sort of eschatological statement about end times that I'm not making, okay? A physical temple, after what Christ has done, in bringing temple, sacrifice, priesthood to fulfillment, and consummation in the new heavens and in the new earth, a physical temple would would be so retrograde, it would almost be blasphemous. Because the whole point of that whole system has been fulfilled and transcended by Jesus. It's an enormous theological step backwards to think that that's the point of what God is doing. It's fulfilled its purpose. Because the purpose was to be the place where you met with God in a holy environment, through the shedding of blood. There's only one blood sacrifice that ever atoned for sin. It was offered 2,000 years ago, and it is finished once for all. And now when we are the holy of holies, and God is our God, and there's intimate consummation, There's no need for a physical temple. God is the temple. The Lamb is the temple. And his bride is the Holy of Holies where he dwells intimately. He dwells in us. We don't need the sun or the moon. It's the the glory of God gives light. The Lamb is its lamp. Fascinating verse which I won't talk about. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. What, what it means for the kings of the earth to bring their splendor into the new heavens and new earth is something which uh, I'll, I'll tell you about some week. You just have to come back faithfully for the next number of years until I do. Its gates are never shut, why? Well, well, the only time, the reason that you shut gates was because it got dark and you didn't know what enemies were out there. It's before streetlights. how blessed it would be to live without street light and actually see the stars. Uh, You you close the city gates because you didn't know what was coming. But you don't close the city gates if it's never night, and you don't close the city gates if there's never any danger. If there aren't any enemies, you don't don't need gates at all. So the gates are always open. There's never anything to be afraid of. That's what that image uh, communicates. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, which again is an evangelistic call. Do you know that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Do you have faith in Jesus? Make sure that you do. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So, so the river of life comes right from God. He's the source. Down the middle of the great street of the city. So what you have now is, is you work through the imagery, you have this, this beautiful, glorious, refracting, reflecting, gem ridden you know pearls, gold, all these precious gems we have no idea what they are, I can't pronounce any of them. You know, all of this city, this, this composite glory, this great street that's made of gold. and down this great street that's made of gold, you have a you have a river of life flowing. The river, the, the river of life, the water of life flows on a, on a on a riverbed of pure gold, right from the throne of God. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. On each side of the city, there there's tree of life trees, the tree that. You could not get to after sin. Now now the the cherubim with the flaming sword sheaths his sword and says, Come in. Come and eat. They, they, They are fertile and fruitful. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. They will see his face. It's obviously a metaphor because God is not embodied. He doesn't have a physical form. He doesn't have a physical face. But, but we can sometimes say how how much we you know I send like one text message a week, but you know people text. I assume in some of those text conversations, someone at some point says, it would be nice to speak face-to-face. At least I hope that's the desire. There's something beautiful about face-to-face communication. Not just seeing the person, but there's an intimacy there. That's sort of the idea here, is that we're going to have this sort of intimate conversation with God. We're going to see him as he is. He's going to see us as we are, reflecting his glory. And his name will be on their foreheads. He'll he'll write his ownership right on our face. Again, there will be no more night, no need of a lamp or the light. The Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. In other words, we will be installed on thrones next to God to reign with him forever and ever and ever. So that we are priests and we are kings. You have a priest-king in just a couple places in the Bible, Jesus, Melchizedek, and Adam. I think what you're being told here, as you work through the whole imagery, is that we're going to be like Adam. Or the second, the last Adam, Jesus, who fulfills it all perfectly. we're going to be what we're supposed to be for the very first time. For the very first time when the Lord returns and there's a consummation, we are going to be what humanity was created to be. Then the angel said, you can count on it. And then Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. Soon as in God's time frame, not ours, but it is the next big event in redemptive history. The next big thing, the next climactic thing that God does is this. Maybe there won't be a 2020. Maybe this is the year the Lord will return. Maybe the Lord won't return for 2,000 more years. If we have no guarantee either way, we don't know what the Lord's going to do. But what we are called to do is we are called to live our life now in light of this future reality. And it can be hard to live life now. It is hard to live life now in a lot of ways. But to focus on this... And to believe it. To trust it. To actually accept these words. Because if we can actually, if we can enter into this and believe it and hold on to it and know that it's true, then it will keep us from from an enormous number of mistakes and errors of judgment trying to get everything now. Because this isn't the best life that God has for you the reality is it will be over soon. It doesn't feel that way during long nights. It doesn't feel like that when you can't see the light at the end of a very dark tunnel. I know that. I know that our human, subjective, existential experience in this life can be that it seems long and agonizing sometimes. But, But what a future. What a glorious thing God is doing. And if he is giving us this, then we must be empowered to trust him today. And if we can trust him today, then we will also be able to find that even though this is the veil of tears, there's an awful lot of joy to be had here too. There's an awful lot of beauty. This is one of the things that, that I have to admit, For just this is personal. This isn't even preaching anymore. This is just me just talking about myself. One of the things that I long to see in the new heavens and new earth, is how beautiful it is. Because I find, in many ways, this world is devastating in its sadness, but also this world, it, it, it's just overwhelming in its beauty sometimes. And there's so much joy to be had here. And this is the world that's under the curse! The curse and all the work of the devil and all the work of my own sin still can't make this world cease being a fundamentally beautiful thing. Oh, but one day to see it, to see the world God has made and there's no curse there, what will that be like? God's going to have to give me a, a larger emotional capacity or I'll pass out. I don't know that's where we're going. May God help us to get there with our name written in the Lamb's book of life. To get there with hope and joy and togetherness and love. Because one day we together are going to be the bride of the Lamb. I'm going to ask your musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.